having a little bit of problem with the microphone. Can you? There we go. Well, it's great to be here. I was here in the fall with my son, Martin. I had an opportunity to share with some of the members of the missions committee about our ministry in Taiwan and in China and in Indonesia and around the world. And at that time, I came to thank the congregation for being a part of our ministry for so many years. Actually, for 24 years, your, your church has been partners with our family in ministry. And I really give God thanks for your partnership with me over the years. But this time, I did not come back uh, to give a missionary report. Um, I wish I was in some ways because I have a lot to share about that. But no, instead, I have a different opportunity here among you this time. And the opportunity is to bring the word of God and to explore God's direction for the future of whether or not he's calling me and Evie to come and join the ministry of this church. And I just want to say a big thank you to all of you who have made possible us coming here. And especially a big thank you to Emily for all of her wonderful um, correspondence and to the search committee and to Pastor Caleb and to um, all those of you who've prayed to bring us to this point. So I feel like this is a divine moment. God brought us here. He brought you here. He brought us his word. And now we want to pay attention to the word of God. So let me ask you to um, turn your attention back to the word of God. If you have a pew Bible, you can take a look at it. Or um, if you'd like to follow along with my outline, you'll find the outline in the bulletin. And there's some fill in the blanks. You can come show me at the end whether or not you got the right answers. And I'll let you know if you did or if you didn't. Um, But what I'd like to talk to you about today, I think, is a very important subject I want to talk to you from the scriptures about what are the marks of authentic preaching and effective listening, as we see the Apostle Paul share from his testimony in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, before we even jump into verse 1, I want to remind you, there is a context for this passage. And if you look back in your Bibles, everybody take a look, um, grab the pew Bible in front of you or pull it out on your phone. I don't mind if you... Got your phone out looking at at the Bible, but go back earlier to verse 26 of chapter one. And you'll see this, that Paul was dealing with a very important question when he wrote the Corinthians here. He had already visited the Corinthians on another occasion, and he had already written them a letter. So there's different parts throughout first Corinthians where the Apostle Paul will say now concerning the things you wrote or um, Actually, they had written him a letter, and so there had been dialogue between the two of them. But in answering some of the questions on their mind and considering some of the pastoral issues, he starts in verse 26 of chapter 1 with a question. And the question is, how was it that they became Christians? And he explains, when you look at verse 26, that in the church in Corinth, there weren't very many people who were wise according to the flesh. Wise according to the flesh means wise according to human standards. There weren't a lot of MIT graduates, Harvard graduates in the church in Corinth, graduates of the school of sophistry, of Greek wisdom. There weren't a lot of really smart people necessarily in the church. There weren't very many who were mighty. Powerful, powerful leaders were absent. There weren't many noble. But instead, the church was comprised of ordinary sinners. Sinners like you and me, who just had ordinary problems and had ordinary 
lives, but yet God had chosen them. So in verse 27, he reminds them that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are so that no one should boast before God. And then the point, look at verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. As Paul thought about the question and had to bring before the Corinthians the answer to the question, how is it that any of us become Christians? He says it very simply. It's of God's doing. We are all Christians, those of us here today who have already believed in Jesus, because of the work of God, the work of God's Spirit, helping us to understand the word of the gospel and bringing to us a sense of the need for our Savior Jesus Christ to bring us to that place in our lives where we say to Jesus, yes, Lord, I need you. Yes, Lord, I want you. And no one gets there except for by the doing of our triune God. And so as Paul answers that question, he immediately in chapter two, where we're going to pick up, has to address something else. Paul had to defend himself. In the church in Corinth, much like the church in the U.S. today, there, had, there were people who had come in to preach the gospel who were smooth talkers. They had certain characteristics, certain mannerisms, and a certain message. And because the church was so taken by listening to these modern prophets, these modern apostles, that he says in 2 Corinthians are not true apostles, they were getting taken away by that. And Paul has to then defend himself. Paul, the apostle who helped bring the church into existence in Corinth, is now having to write a letter to some of his spiritual children and defend who he is as as an apostle and how he was when he was among them. So when we pick up in chapter two with the passage that Emily just shared um, with us moments ago, we have to realize that he's explaining something and he's giving us a flashback. Um, How many of you watch the show Quantico? Anybody watch Quantico? Let me see out there. Not very many? A few. Okay, few. Yes, you are my friends. You are my good friends. We're on the same wavelength. Those of you who haven't watched it, you should maybe want to watch it. Um, watch the first season first. But one of the things that's interesting about the show is it's full of flashbacks. Uh, it'll show you what happens at this time, and then it goes back and shows you what happened six months earlier. Okay, some of you don't watch Quantico. Anybody watch Arrow? Any Arrow watchers? Okay, I did a little bit better with Arrow. Actually, some of the same people who watched Quantico watch Arrow. So we are doubly blessed. But um, you've got these flashbacks to Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow, when he's back on the Chinese island of Lian Yu, learning all the things that he learned about how to be the ninja that he is today. So it's a flashback. Well, here we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a flashback. And in this flashback, it's so interesting because he tells us how it was that he came to them when he came to them. And it's rather interesting, I think, because didn't they know how he came? Why is he even having to write to remind them? But yet he has to remind them. And the first thing that he reminds them of is that when he came to them and when any authentic preacher of the word of God comes to you, they will not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. They will not come to you, as the NIV text reads that, that, that we just read, they will not come to you with eloquence 
or human wisdom. But isn't that exactly what people are seeking in the church today? Who are the mega preachers? Help me think. Who are the people today that everybody watches on the TV? Does anybody know who the number one uh, TV evangelist is today that everybody watches? Joel Osteen. Do you know how many people come to his church on Sunday morning? Anybody know? How many? Nope. You're all wrong. Keep on. Someone else? Okay. Some of you are beginning to get maybe a little bit close to the answer, but it's actually 70,000 people who are connected in either in person or um, in the Houston area uh, alone or wherever he is. He's at He's someplace in Texas. Texas is a big place. But <clears throat> Joel Osteen is preaching today to a lot more people than I am. That's that can be a good thing. Um, But what's the point, brothers and sisters? Why did everybody go to hear Joel Osteen? He's a smooth talker. I've watched him on YouTube. I've learned a lot about preaching and methodology of communication from him. Want to know what I've learned from Joel Osteen? Smile. So so (laughs) I try, try to remember to smile, you know. And so, you know, you can learn things from the smooth talking, eloquent preachers of today. Yet Paul says he didn't come like that. He didn't come with eloquence. And that's what people are expecting today. But not only that, notice what he didn't come with. He didn't come with human wisdom. What does he mean by human wisdom? What's wrong with human wisdom? Thank God for human wisdom. We have human wisdom in the medical field. We have human wisdom that makes wonderful, smart, heart hybrid cars like the one I've been borrowing from from Shalha. And uh, thank God for the... The wisdom of the world that gives us many wonderful things. Is Paul trying to say, oh, forget science, forget medicine, forget all those kinds of of wisdom things, forget math. Oh, God, I wish we could forget math because math was my terrible point in in school. And I still have nightmares about not passing geometry. Actually, the only way I passed it, to be honest, the only reason why I'm here standing in front of you today is because on extra credit day, my mom baked brownies. And my F went to a D. And that's why I'm here today. Um, So is Paul saying that we should not appreciate calculus and math and all these wonderful things? No, he's not saying that. When he says human wisdom and says he didn't come with human wisdom, he's contrasting it with the way in which people are today where they think their thoughts, their meta thoughts, their thoughts that stand above Everything in discernment as they decide what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And we are really challenged today, I think, in the Church of Christ today, because what's happening is, is people are standing above the message of Christianity and they're looking down on it from their principle of judgment And from their meta principles above here. And they are judging Christianity by human wisdom. And you know what they're saying? The first thing they're saying is, is that Christianity is not fair. And it's not fair because there are some people who don't have a chance to believe, who don't even have a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible say about anyone who perishes without Christ? That they perished. And Peter tells us, In the book of Acts, that there is salvation in no one else, 
For there there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. So when people of the world hear that what the church says is that if you don't hear of Christ, which is why you have missionaries and send them out so that people have a chance to hear. But if you hear and then don't believe in Jesus, you're not saved. And so people say, well, a God that would even plan salvation that way and would give some people the opportunity to hear, but others not or not help the people who heard to actually believe that that kind of a God is not the way God would be. So they dream up God as an idol in their mind and the God that they believe in is not the God of the scriptures. And so they look down on the Bible and they judge it and they say Christianity is unfair. Um, The other thing that people do is they focus in on what I call the exclusive truth claims of the gospel. Jesus says in John 14, verse six, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. Listen to that. No one comes to the father, but through me. So today we're living in the midst of a pluralistic society where because of the laws of the land and the needs of society, you have the freedom to believe any religion you want to. However, the freedom in under the political realm to believe whatever religion you want to doesn't mean that when it comes to truth and to God and to knowing God, that all religions are saying the same thing or that all religions are equally valid. So when people hear that Jesus says that he alone is the way and that no one comes to the father, but through him, they're like, no, Christianity is not inclusive. You've left out the Muslims. You've left out the Hindus. You've left out the Buddhists. You've left out the agnostics. You've left out the atheists. You've left out the good people. And I got to be honest with you. Sometimes this even bugs me. Why? Because I have some friends who are Buddhists that are super nice and I love them dearly. And when I taught uh, world religions at the Universitas Pelotaharapan for uh, two of the last three years, I had six semesters of world religions class and every single one of my students were non-Christians. They had to believe in Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism or agnosticism just to take, take my class. They couldn't take my class unless they believed in no religion or believed in a different religion. And you know what? I became really close to those students. Super close. I love them like they were my own children. And we learned all the religions of the world and, and the distinctives of all the religions, the differences, the similarities. And we took the time to actually study the original text. And I made a lot of friends. And to think about that, that some of the Buddhist friends that I love, like they are my own family, are going to hell simply because they don't, Jesus, they don't know Jesus Christ. I confess that sometimes bothers me. And I bet it's bothered some of you here today. And so we're tempted because in our heart of hearts, we love everyone and wish that God would save everyone. We're tempted to then say that the God who is there, of course, wouldn't send anybody else to hell, especially if they were a nice, good person. But when we come to the scriptures, that's exactly what it says. We're forced with a choice. Do we accept human wisdom and its inclusiveness or do we accept divine wisdom and revelation, which leads us back to all roads and all roads lead us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. So today, those of us who are Christians, those of you who are Christians who are trying to have serious and 
uh, meaningful, thoughtful conversations with your friends and with other people, you're going to have to face this, that people are looking down on Christianity, judging it from the standard of a human wisdom that Paul said he didn't come and bring to those who were in the church at Corinth. Another thing that I find uh, people saying today is as they look down on the scriptures, they think they say, wait a minute, we can't have a book like the Bible. okay? because all the sacred texts were written by men who wrote the Quran. Anybody know who wrote the Quran? Muhammad, right. Was Muhammad a God or was he a human being? He was a human being. Then we have the Bhagavad Gita and then we have um, the Analects, the Lun Yu, who wrote that. Anybody know? I'm testing your Chinese um, history and background. Who wrote the Analects? Confucius. Exactly. Was he a man? Yes. Who wrote the Tao Te Ching? Not Tao. <laughs> Try it again, people. Um, who? Yes, I heard it. Um, Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu wrote the, the, the Tao Te Ching. Um, actually, Confucius didn't write the Analects. His disciples wrote the Analects and... and they took statements of his and then wrote them down. Um, that's a whole long story that I don't have a chance to get into with you today. I wish I had time to. But the point I'm saying is, is that people are looking at all the sacred texts of many of the important philosophies of the world or religions of the world. And they're saying they were just written by men. So how is it that you Christians think that your book is written by God? And you call it God's Word, but Paul wrote 11 of the letters of the New Testament. And Peter wrote two of the letters of the New Testament. And John wrote one of the Gospels and three of the letters of the New Testament and the book of Revelation. So why is it that you're looking at a book that was written by human beings? I just spoke of the New Testament. Let's just focus on the New Testament. You're looking at a book that was written by mere human beings and you're saying that it's God's Word. To be human is to be fallible and we make mistakes. So the, the mere mention of the fact that this book is written by human beings causes people then to think that it must be full of errors. So people don't trust that it's the word of God. How do you answer that? What do you say to your friends in conversation with them? Or do you not know what to say? Or when somebody focuses in on the human element of scripture and the cultural element, do you then say, oh, well, I don't really quite know what to do about that. And so then you don't think that the Bible that you have in your hand is really the word of God. Well, brothers and sisters, what we have in our hands today on our tablets, my eyes are bad, so I have to use a tablet to, to, to light up the words in the back and what you have on your cell phones in today in the accessible word of God that's in your hands is the word of God. It's not simply the words of men, but it is the words of men. But it is also the word of God because it is divinely inspired. <clears throat> and the Bible says that men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so the, the Bible that we have is trustworthy and it's written by the Holy Spirit, while at the same time written by human beings like Paul, whose personality as well as living experience comes out in the Bible. So when we come to this passage, we think it's sort of weird because we're in the middle of his travel log talking about what happened when he came back there. And we're in the middle of his explanation of the kind of message that he brought to them. So he did not come with eloquence of speech or with human wisdom. Um, but we do know this. Look at the end of verse one. 
Paul brought to them a message that he calls the testimony of God. He brings it, but he calls it the testimony of God. Here, Paul is saying that he is speaking a witness about God. He's speaking in the place of God. And when somebody like me stands up in front of you and teaches the word of God, I am standing in the place of those like Paul who spoke the words of God, but I'm standing as a steward. I wish I was inspired, especially during math tests. God, give me direct revelation. Um, But I'm a steward of what God has already revealed in the word of God. And so as he talks about his message, what he does in verse two is very interesting. He's giving us his testimony of what it was that he brought to them when he preached to them the first time. And look at verse two. I'm going to read it from um, different versions because different versions have different flavors. Um, And I'm not going to start with the NIV, which was read, because to be perfectly honest, I really like the the NIV um, on this passage because it translates one of the words there exactly with the flavor that I think it comes from in in the Greek. So I'm going to wait and hold the NIV um, till later. But hang on, I'm going to read you the New American Standard translation of verse two. Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he says determined. This is what I determined to do when I came amongst you. This is how I was. But then one of the other versions, we have the English Standard um, Version, which many people are using today. It doesn't say determined. It says, Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. But then you come to the new American uh, to the new international version. And what does it say? For I what? For I resolved, resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, what am I talking about? Think about it like this. What's the dis- what's the difference between decision for I decided um, and what's the difference between I determined and I resolved? Is it just one way of saying the same thing or is there a substantive difference here? Well, let's talk about decision. What did you decide to do today? Since you've gotten up today, what was the first thing you decided? You had to make several decisions to bring you here. But what was the first thing that some of you decided? Yes, what to wear. Okay, one of the first questions um, you ladies are going like this. The men don't care. They just grab whatever's clean and it's clean. It's okay. But um, for the lady, the ladies have a decision to make. What am I going to wear? Okay. Um, And what's the second decision you make? What's your big second decision after you've got your clothes on? Yes, breakfast, what am I going to eat? Am I going to have eggs or am I going to have baozi or am I going to have manto or am I going to have Captain Crunch, which is one of my favorites? Um, so you're faced with different decisions. So is Paul saying, well, when I got to Corinth, I had a decision to make. What do I want to preach on? Maybe I'll preach on this. Maybe I'll preach on that. Because the thing about decision is sometimes you can decide other way and it doesn't make a difference. Now, does it? But when you get to the New American Standard translation of this word or when you get to the NIV, you begin to see what it was that he said. He didn't say he merely decided. It doesn't say he merely determined what he said, as the NIV correctly translates it, is he resolved. And if I say to you today, I resolve, then that means not only did I make a decision, but then I changed my life so that everything else in my life allowed me to do what it was that I resolve. 
Now, I've resolved a few things in my life. I resolved when I was in seventh grade that I was going to be the principal trumpet in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Um, and I went to the Eastman School of Music, studied with a second trumpet player in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and I was headed on that way to go there because I had made a resolution when I was in seventh grade that this is what I was going to do. God had other plans, so God re- redirected me. Then I resolved other things at different points. I resolved that I was going to learn Chinese when we became m- missionaries. And I've been learning Chinese for 24 years, and I can speak Chinese. Tai hao la, gan xie ju. Shen ting jin, wo de dao gao. So, praise the Lord. Um, I resolved, but you know what? That resolution took every ounce of fiber inside of me, because at first it's sort of hard. And the lines are squiggly, you know, and remembering all the 220 radicals is a real nightmare. If I thought, um, if I thought geometry was bad, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, 30,000 characters to remember. Lord help us all. Um, so, but I resolved to learn it and I learned it. You know what Paul says? Oh, let me tell you about someone else in the resolution. Do you know who the, the most famous U.S. theologian is in world history? This is a question for Chris. Where is Emily's husband, Chris? Chris, are you here amongst us? Chris, identify yourself. Okay. Um, who is the most famous American theologian? Yes! And I didn't even brief him ahead of time. Okay. So, first semester of seminary and he nailed it. So, um, Jonathan Edwards wrote many things that seminary students have to read and you'll probably have to read at Gordon-Conwell. But one of the things that he wrote that I've always gone back to was he wrote a list of resolutions and then he says this word he says resolved something 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 resolved something 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 well one of the the resolutions of jonathan edwards that i've always remembered was this he said resolved listen to me people everybody listen up resolved never to do anything that i would be ashamed of doing it if it were the last hour of my life Whoa, that's like, that's heavy, man. You know, he resolved never to do anything that he would be ashamed of doing if this were the last hour until God called him off of this earth. That affected what he said. That affected what he did. That affected everything in Jonathan Edwards' life. Read his resolutions. They're really awesome. But you know what? There's another resolution that's meant more to me than even Jonathan Edwards'. There's another resolution that's meant an awful lot more to me than even learning Chinese. And that has meant the world to me. And you want to know what that resolution is? It's the resolution of verse 2. Paul says to the Corinthians, Resolved, determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And brothers and sisters, throughout my ministry, I've tried to keep the focus where it needs to be. On Jesus, on his crucifixion, on his resurrection, and on everything it is that Christ has done. Because it's awesome as we think about what he has done. And I find it interesting here because we know he's talking about preaching because in verse 1 he talks about proclaiming to you the testimony of God. We know he's talking about his preaching and what he did when he came to the Corinthians. But notice here that the verb in verse 2 is not preach. What is it? He's talking about his preaching but he doesn't use the verb preach. What does he What's the verb? He determined to what? Not to preach but to something else. No. 
He determined to know nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. That's really weird. Why did He say that? The reason why He said it, brothers and sisters, is because when He said no, He was talking about a different kind of knowledge. You can know a fact. You can know how to speak a language. But that's completely different from knowing a person and having a relationship to them. So what He tells them is that When he was among them preaching, he determined he resolved to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wanted to know Jesus. That was the passion of his life. It was the passion of his prayers. In Ephesians 1, he prays for all believers in in Ephesus and in other places that they would know all that there is in Jesus. That they would know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The fact that if you're chosen by God and you believed in Jesus, you are Jesus's inheritance. You're going to be given to Jesus as his. And that's why your salvation is secure. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe? These are the precious things that Paul says he was resolved to know among them. Because in knowing these things, you know Christ. He says in other places, he says in Philippians, he says, I want to know him. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And there he is. He not only says he wants to know Jesus, he wants to know the cross of Christ as well. And I must confess to you, brothers and sisters, I think it's very dangerous today. People want to know a Jesus and the power of his resurrection, but they often don't want to know Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings. And when you start emphasizing the cross of Jesus Christ and how all those of us who follow Jesus have to take up our cross daily and follow him, then you um, you realize that people don't emphasize this anymore. And if they do emphasize the cross of Jesus Christ, then some people aren't going to want to believe. I preached a series in Taipei, Taiwan. Uh, on the words of Jesus. And I hit all the hard passages where Jesus says, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For if anybody wishes to save his life, he shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who shall find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? So what... What I was preaching on were just simply the words of Jesus, but I hit the big cross passages um, and some of the important events where Jesus is talking to his disciples and they don't want him to go to the cross. And he's having to rebuke Satan, speaking through them and tell them, get behind me, Satan, because you're setting your your heart on the interests of man rather than on the things of God. And I ran up against a lady in our congregation, a dear sister. She came up to me at the end of one of my messages and she said, you got to stop, Pastor Tim. And I said, stop what? She said, stop preaching like that. So what do you mean stop preaching like that? She said, you've got to stop preaching on this cross stuff. And I said, why? And she said, because you're going to empty our church. And I said, I can assure you something. That if I focus on the cross of Jesus Christ and how we share it as believers until we're glorified, that it will not empty our church. It will strengthen our church because that is the message of true Christianity. One of the blessings of my entire missions ministry over the years has been getting to know the house church Christians in China. These group of Christians who don't come under the control of the government. And because they don't come under the control of the government, they're sometimes persecuted. They have to experience 
the cross of Christ themselves. So you know what? One of the ladies I, I interviewed on one occasion, I interviewed more than, um, more than a dozen evangelists and church planners in Hanan province. And I asked every single one of them this question. I said this. Have you ever been arrested for your faith? Have you ever been tortured? Have you ever had all of your belongings confiscated? And I asked every single person that question. And every single person, one after one after one, all said yes. But they said yes with a smile on their face. Really bizarre. You know, they're talking about having everything taken out of their house, being fined more than their bank account could stand, and being tortured more gruesome than I can share in this audience today. And yet every single one of them had a smile on their face until the last lady, a female evangelist. And I asked her, I said, sister, have you ever had the, the experience of being arrested or persecuted or tortured? Here's what she did. Everybody look at me. Here's what she did. She did this. And with shame, she looked at me and said these words that I've never forgotten. She said, I have never had the privilege of suffering for my Savior. Well, brothers and sisters, I've learned from the Chinese church that to know Jesus is to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, to be willing to share in the pain and the abuse that comes from claiming his message and trying to take it to the world amidst persecuting forces. But not only have I learned the cross, I've learned the hope of the resurrection that causes every single one of those believers that I know who has suffered to smile and say it was worth it all. Why? Because I know Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to ask you this question today. Is that what you're expecting to get from the preaching? Not simply to fill your fact, your head with more facts about more Bible things. Many people come to church when I was in Indonesia. They came to hear Stephen Tong taught because you'd get a great history lesson and philosophy lesson. But why are you coming today? Are you coming not for the facts, not for the careful exposition, but in addition to all that, you're coming to experience the knowledge of Jesus Christ together in this corporate body and from the mouth of whoever is preaching to you on a weekly basis. That is what you should be looking for. Not the smooth talking pastor, not the worldly wisdom that stands above scripture, but the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, who is our savior and our Lord and who loved us enough to die for us. And so in just a moment, we'll celebrate his death and his life amongst us. Let's pray together.